0: How's it going? I'm Spencer, and welcome to This and Chat, the interview podcast full of fun, offbeat, and engaging questions, so you can learn something new about my guests. My guest for this episode is Shannon McGuire. Shannon is a Hugo Award-winning writer that writes sci-fi, fantasy, and horror novels. She is an amazing storyteller, and it was so entertaining talking with her. In this episode, Shannon talks about growing up, her love of books and comics, stand-up comedy, and so much more. Enjoy listening and learn something new about Seanan McGuire. All right, Seanan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited to have you here. How are you doing today?
1: I am doing pretty well. It's a nice damp day here in the Seattle area. It's been drizzling but not pouring, so it doesn't sound like my roof's about to come down, and that's always a positive thing.
0: So Seanan, maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about your background in the sense of where you grew up, what kind of kid you were, and some of the things you're interested in, and maybe if you have a story that kind of sums up who you were as a kid.
1: So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. A relatively small city called Concord. Uh, The pronunciation of the town's name is intentional. And as I grew there, it went from being semi-rural and there would be chicken farms and empty lots and you could just kind of run feral through the streets to being much more urbanized and really a bedroom community for San Francisco, which is why I left California. I grew up way below the poverty line. So I was a welfare child. Most of my reading was either libraries or used bookstores or boxes of stripped paperbacks that we had scavenged from behind the Walden books. I am one of the most pro library people you'll ever meet who never uses a library because I was a weird kid. I was probably the weirdest kid in my school. You know, I was the girl still bringing my little ponies to class in my backpack all the way up to 11 because they made me happy i watched horror movies on the weekends i read too much and had no idea what was or was not age appropriate and when you're the weird kid you get bullied a lot so mm-hmm. other kids beat the living shit out of me when i was 10 years old oh god all of the books i had in my bag into the mm-hmm. i had been walking near me with library fines in the hundreds kid who could not afford a new paperback that was insurmountable and there was no forgiveness program at that time Mm -hmm. so i am extremely pro the existence of libraries and really support fine forgiveness programs Mm -hmm. i don't have a library card and haven't used a library in years because i just can't i can't get past the idea of not owning my book and a story that kind of tells you you know who i was as a kid um i accidentally bred pink alligator lizards (laughs) and introduced them into the area in which I lived, and you can still catch some of the descendants of my nine-year-old science project if (laughs) there are
0: enough rocks. Uh, Sean, maybe can you share this story? I was reading this one, and I I found it so funny just how did you get uh your mom to let you read stephen king
1: so stephen king is one of my favorite authors he's extremely formative for me he's been extremely formative for a lot of people and for some reason he was the only horror author that my mother had ever heard of bring me home boxes of books from yard sales that she had paid you know, five bucks to get 80 paperbacks, but they were all old and falling apart. Uh, She would bring me home the strip paperbacks and she didn't read things first because I read too quickly. I read with the focus of a very smart nine-year-old who had nothing else to do with her time. So her only rules were that I was not allowed to read Robert Heinlein. He had heard that he was dirty and I was not allowed to read Stephen King because she had heard that he was scary. At this point I have already already read Clive Barker Anne Rice and mm-hmm. A Lovecraft. There is nothing in Stephen <laughs> I can imagine mm-hmm. that actually be frightening and upsetting enough to mean he should be forbidden when they were not. So I, uh, well, I snuck a copy of Cujo. That was the first Stephen King book I read, and I read it completely in secret because I was not allowed yet. Read a Stephen King book, verified that it was actually something I wanted, and then wrote a 12-page essay complete with bibliography, citations, and footnotes explaining to my mother why she was trying to lock the barn door after the horse had already been set on fire and escaped. You know, in Rawhide Rex, there is a character pulls a man's lip over his head like a hat. I do not believe that Stephen King will contain any imagery remotely as disturbing. She did allow me to read Stephen King after that. I was still
0: not allowed to read Heinlein. and what are some things you're passionate about outside of writing?
1: I really, really love d I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, and so okay. I passionate about acceptance and inclusion in the table mm. community. You know, there is a surprisingly large percentage of the community that thinks tabletop role-playing from Dungeons and Dragons in specific is just for straight white dudes who might've been bullied in high school, able-bodied white dudes who might, mm, Okay. the version of d d that they are fantasizing about going back to legitimately never existed. I was playing Dungeons and Dragons in 1991. I would have been mm-hmm. playing sooner if I had been old enough to read the rule books. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't the only girl. I wasn't the only queer person. I wasn't the only weirdo. You don't get to retroactively say you couldn't date a cheerleader in high school and that means girls aren't welcome at your table. And you do, it's your table. You get to say that I am not invited to play D&D with you anytime you want, but you don't get to tell me I can't have a table of my own And you don't get to tell me that uh, no one gets to run a table for people like me or other people who are not welcome at your table. So I'm very passionate about that. I worked for a long time for a nonprofit organization that was uh, their their mission was to assist people in finding technological solutions to bridge the digital divide. Okay. Even now, one in six Americans does not have consistent access to the Internet. That's just not a thing that we have. Mm. And as someone who comes from that welfare child background, the background where sometimes I went to school stinky because the choice was my sister's asthma medication or buying me deodorant. And that was literally how tight our budget was. So used books were an essential part of me being able to exist as me. need a certain number of physical artifacts that can enter a cheap resale cycle. And that is not the case with digital only offerings. So I am very weirdly passionate about the existence of physical media for all. We need physical editions of video games. We need physical editions of books. We need stuff that you can look at and say, this is taking up space in my home. I don't want it anymore and drop off at a Goodwill to take it into that next step down of economic buying power. It would be better if we could equalize buying power and everyone could afford everything. But I feel like I have a little bit more power to complain when something I have written is presented as digital only and my contract didn't say that, to say no we need to have a universal basic income now today so that everyone can afford an internet connection But you know and i'm very ridiculously passionate about animal conservation and mm-hmm. conservation which is not a very important thing in the grander scheme of things but most toys these days are made of plastic and we act like since plastic does not decay it is immortal and nothing mm-hmm. can destroy it plastic is undergoing chemical breakdown all the time And if you have collectible items, they deserve to be treated kindly or passed to someone who will treat them kindly.
0: So you mentioned comics, specifically Marvel Comics. So obviously, you had the chance to write for Marvel Comics, which I'm sure was a dream. I think anybody who's, who's who's picked up a comic, but especially you since you're a writer has, you know, imagined their own story. But how did you get into comics? Do you remember maybe like the first comic you read and maybe the first story arc that really captured your imagination?
1: So there is a comic book store in Concord, California called Flying Colors Comics and other cool stuff. And it belongs to a man named Joe Field who actually created Free Comic Book Day. That was his baby. Okay. He opened the store with his wife, and his intention was to create a space where comics would be available and accessible to everyone. He always had women on his staff. He had people of color on his staff long before any other comic book store I had been to did. You know, he tried to make sure that no matter who you were, if you came into Flying Colors, you would be greeted with a love of comics, not a, what are you doing here? People who look like you don't shop here. And it was walking distance of my Aunt Debbie's house. So when that store opened, when I was nine, I started walking down and would browse through the comics. The first storyline I really remember was actually Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld from DC. And uh, you know, I would flip through things because it was the only comic store I'd ever found that allowed children to be there remember my first comics because those also came in the big batches from the yard sales and the library book sales Mm -hmm. so I would just random stuff that was Mm -hmm. already falling apart and you might Mm -hmm. get to read it once but then it would be gone um the first storyline that really hurt me was the death of Gwen Stacy I am technically too young to have experienced that as a child Mm -hmm. And I was reading comics that were 10 years out of date, and Gwen was the first person I saw in comics that looked like me. She was a blonde who loved mm-hmm. science and math. She was mm-hmm. as smart as Peter Parker. I knew she was never going to be the main character because she didn't have superpowers and it wasn't her name on the cover, but she gave me an entry into comics that I didn't have from other places. And then they dropped her off a bridge, and I was not okay. But eventually I discovered the X-Men, and I never looked back.
0: Excellent. We'll definitely get back into the comics but we'll we'll change pace a little bit and i'm just asking you about uh your childhood and music is there in a song that you have from your childhood maybe your mom played it maybe you heard it on the radio but for some reason it really resonates with you and you can remember it very vividly
1: okay so this is a little weird but there is a terrible horror movie that came out in 1984 that i passionately it's called critters And in Critters, the alien bounty hunter space shapeshifters take on the appearance of humans to be able to hunt the alien space porcupines that are about to eat the earth. One of them turns into a musician named Johnny Steele. And we actually get to see the music video of Johnny Steele's hit song, Power of the Night. And so that is, I tracked down a copy of of the Critters soundtrack just so I could have an MP3 of power of the night
0: and just as a follow-up do you remember the first album you ever bought asked for
1: the first album i ever bought with my own money and intentionally mm-hmm. soundtrack to the disney movie allowed on cassette the first album i can remember owning was actually a uh, a record it was a vinyl record mm-hmm. song and song and story of the haunted mansion at disney mm. so it's a 17 minute long single track that basically walks you through the ride and then plays Grim Grinning Ghosts at the end.
0: Oh, so, so Sean, and I know you were a stand up comic briefly. So I just want to know how did that come about? Your personality just kind of brought you down that way, or is there a story behind it? I was a socially
1: anxious child. Okay like people very much um i'm still not super fond of them you know i'm okay with doing stuff like podcasts because we've been in lockdown for a year i don't see anybody it's kind of awful but kind of great in a weird fucked up sort of way and uh you know it turns out that when you are raising a socially awkward child your primary goal becomes how can i make this child interact with other humans mm-hmm. in a way that is not introducing them to her my little ponies or trying to show them a lizard we got some money for reasons that I don't think are within the remit of your podcast. It just brings food. That's but okay. Some money. And uh, so my mother enrolled me in stand up comedy classes when I was 11. Okay. Started doing the young comedians circuit. And it turns out that when you are relatively articulate, talk really fast, and terrified of being judged by people, making them laugh at you on purpose is kind of like heroin. You learn to stand up in front of them. Because if I've told you a joke and you're laughing, you're not laughing at me. You're laughing at the joke. And I can't really tell the difference. And that's
0: mm. uh, Do you remember any of your jokes or the bits that you had?
1: I worked super blue. Um, that's actually why I stopped. Because I started publishing books in 2009. Okay. My last big gig was in 2011. I got booked at... Um, Tommy T's when they lost their, they lost their headliner and I did what I am best at, which was be an emergency replacement. Hey, I'm going to swing above my weight class because you can't get anybody better. It's great. So they lost their headliner and I got to step in as their headline act with about eight hours notice. And because it was such a short notice, I didn't have time to prep anything new. So I was bringing in the bits that I was mostly doing at that point, which were uh, Weight Watchers is Disneyland for people with OCD the international line and menstruation falls. And so I'm, I'm doing this, like there's a bit with a jump rope. It's a whole thing and <laughs> on the marquee. At, mm-hmm. at the end of the evening, you know, I go out to the lobby and I'm ready to leave. Everything's great. And there are these two terrified looking teenage girls. They, they literally look like they have just seen someone murdered in front of them. They were fans of my books who had come in because they saw my name on the marquee and did not expect to hear <laughs> the words that came out of my mouth. <laughs> And that's when I went, okay, given the age range and Mm -hmm. matter, I write, I have to choose between this thing that is a hobby Mm -hmm. and this thing that I'm hoping will become a career.
0: Uh, Okay. So Sean, if you could travel back to any time period, so you're you're placed in a bubble where you're invisible to the rest of the world, you're safe, uh, you can view anything throughout history, prehistory, where do you go and why?
1: So it's just viewing, it's no interaction?
0: No interaction. You're just, yeah, like invisible bystander.
1: I would travel back to Messina, Italy in 1347 so that I could observe and accurately document the origins of the bubonic and black plagues.
0: (laughs) Very interesting.
1: I feel it's important to have a strong opinion about something that makes no difference whatsoever and doesn't really matter. Because that way, if someone just absolutely wants to have an argument with you, you have something you can argue about that's unlikely to offend anyone. And (laughs) my argument is usually about the origins of the black death. Okay that it could have been purely bubonic plague. It doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense in the epidemiological evidence that we actually have been able to preserve, but we have no way of knowing, so.
0: Okay, we're gonna switch pace just a little bit, just some less in-depth questions, but if you wanna elaborate on any of these, feel free. I don't think I know the answer to this one, but I'm gonna ask you, cats or dogs? Cats. Fall or spring? Fall. M&M's or Skittles?
1: M&M's, I don't like things that get stuck to my teeth.
0: Uh, Adventurous or relaxing vacation?
1: You know, I think that is so uh, individual, Mm-hmm. I went to university, I went to the University of California, Berkeley, go Bears, for a dual major in folklore and herpetology. That means that I will be having a very relaxing vacation while making it very adventurous for everyone else. <laughs> it is not uncommon to have, oh God, and where did you get that alligator? Please put it back, please put it back from <laughs> people at my campground.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I am also a big fan of the Disney World vacation because I'm a little type O, uh, type A rather, I have type O blood. I'm a little type A, I like to pre-plan absolutely everything and Disney World allows me to do that. Mm. So when we get there, it feels super adventurous because we're doing exciting things, but I have been making spreadsheets for six months before we arrive, relaxing at this point. Everything is inevitable, the ball is rolling down. Mm. So it's, I think whether it's relaxing or adventurous is 100% where you're standing. I was very relaxed when I went to Australia and picked up the magpie. Mm. The who were trying to keep me alive were not relaxed. They made a funny noise.
0: One of your favorite movies. One of my favorite movies, Wreck-It Ralph. If your next meal could be anything in the world, what would it be?
1: If my next meal could be absolutely anything in the world, it would either be the mushroom risotto from La Salier at Disney World or the spaghetti bolognese from the Heathrow Airport Hilton in England.
0: Uh, When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? A writer. What's your go-to snack at the corner store?
1: We don't have a corner store. I live in the middle of fucking nowhere.
0: (laughs) If there was a corner store.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there is a swamp literally uh, 150 yards from my house. When I have been in places with a corner store, Mm -hmm. when I go to New York or whatnot, my my go-to snack is generally popcorn. I like popcorn a lot. As a kid, what was one of
0: your favorite TV shows?
1: As a kid, one of my favorite TV shows was Tales from the Dark Side.
0: Your favorite superhero? Emma Frost. Uh... Your favorite comic book story arc?
1: My favorite comic book story arc is probably Ease for Extinction from Grant Morrison's run on the new X-Men.
0: Favorite Doctor Who episode?
1: Survival. Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldridge, Seventh Doctor.
0: Top three DDR tracks?
1: My top three DDR tracks are absolutely Cartoon Heroes, Captain Jack, and uh, Kids in America.
0: And I just gotta ask, how did you get into DDR? Do you remember the first time you, you played it?
1: I Can't Dance. I okay. have no rhythm whatsoever. <laughs> it is actually kind of pathetic to watch. cry. Mm-hmm. so DDR where it's telling you exactly what to do seems super appealing. Uh, back in about 2006, I had to, uh, improve my physical fitness rather dramatically. I was not in great shape and where I was working at the time, my day job, we were about a quarter mile from the Metreon in San Francisco, which had mm-hmm. a paid upstairs. My lunch hour was just long enough for me to walk to the Metreon, play four rounds of DDR, and walk back to work. And so I started doing that every single day. Mm-hmm. I was never going to be a competitive DDR player, because again, no rhythm whatsoever. But it turns out Dance Dance Revolution is not about dancing. It's about playing a rhythm game. Back, back, mm-hmm. back, back, back. So that is how I started playing, and that is why I think DDR Extreme Mix 2 is the superior DDR mix in the world, because it was my first, and you never <laughs> first.
0: Uh, so I read something about an electronic typewriter that you grew up writing on. Do you still have that?
1: I sadly do not. We lost our entire storage unit when I was 15. Oh, okay. Um, which is part of what I blame my current My Little Pony collecting on. I think hmm. most adult collectors who are collecting things they either couldn't have as a child or lost as a child are okay. trying to fill a missing space. What they desperately wanted when they were a kid was blah, so that's what they collect as an adult. What their mother got rid of before they were ready to lose it as a kid was blah, so that's what they collect. I lost all my My Little Ponies, most of which had been gifts from my grandmother, Mm. before I was emotionally ready to part with them.
0: Mm.
1: So now, My Little Ponies are a source of comfort to me to the point that my therapist tells me to buy more, which is the best thing a therapist has ever said.
0: (laughs) Uh, What are some of your favorite horror movies of all time?
1: Define favorite. Are we saying it's scary or are we saying I need a horror movie so I'm going to put it on to feel better?
0: Uh, You could do both. Maybe you can talk about scary. Maybe give me three scary and three feel good.
1: Okay, so my favorite three, this is going to make me feel better. It's not Mm -hmm. really a great horror movie, but it will bring me comfort and joy. Horror movies are The Stuff, which is about flesh eating frozen yogurt. The Midnight Hour, which was a made-for-TV movie with LeVar Burton and Shelley Belaf- Sher- Sherry Belafonte during the thriller era. So there is an inexplicable, terrible choreographed dance routine in the middle of the film. Five mm-hmm. Barker's Nightbreed, which I mentioned earlier, which will never cease to be comforting to me because I've seen it so many times. Three movies that you may actually find scary though scariness is so dependent on what actually frightens you. Yes. Our Clive Barker's Nightbreed, the Cabal Cut, which is the restored director's cut of the movie, they put back 45 minutes. And they didn't just put back scenes, they put back moments. It changes the movie entirely and actually makes it something worth dreading. Uh, Cabin Fever, the original, the stuff in the water, it's very upsetting. And you know, I'm not actually that easy to scare. The Blair Witch Project scared the crap out of me But go into it in the proper experience for the Blair Witch Project. I don't think that it maintains much of its power on a small screen. Mm -hmm. Um, So less scary, more just I really love this movie and want everyone in the world to see it. Anna and the Apocalypse, which came out two years ago. It is a Scottish zombie Christmas high school musical.
0: Interesting combination there.
1: Everything about it is perfect. Including (laughs) the soundtrack.
0: Shanna, what's the most fun D&D campaign you've ever played?
1: The most fun D&D campaign I've ever played was probably a game that we played at conventions for about three years. It was specifically designed to be a game where you would play a session, go off, go back to your lives, and then mm. months later when all the players were at the same con, you'd all come together again. And uh, because of that, our GM made everyone's characters. You, you had very little input on what you were playing. He just gave you a character and said, this is it. And he knows... He knows me well enough to know that I pretty much will not play dwarves. They're just not a fun D and D race for me. Okay. I like the racial limitations. Mm-hmm. I don't enjoy it. I like elves, humans, and tieflings. Okay. And uh, so he gave me a choice of a dwarf cleric, which he knew I would not take, or a human sorcerer specialist who was basically evil Gene Gray, just to see if he could overcome my dislike of Gene Gray by putting me in that position. And it, it worked, so I wound up playing the Hylia for a while. Uh, her entire goal was to get back into wizard grad school, which she had been kicked out of because she burned it down. So she basically just went around shaking people down like an evil mob boss for <laughs> recommendations. She would literally burn your city to the ground and then turn to the mayor and go, can I have a letter to tell my school how good I did doing that? And it was super fun. Our entire group was was weird as hell. Um, and you don't have to take it too seriously because it's a con game, so it's not the game that you're
0: most invested in. Uh, do you have a favorite character of all time that you've played as? Probably my
1: favorite character of all time across all gaming platforms would be a Nuisha folklore professor that I played in a couple of World of Darkness campaigns. <laughs> and uh, she basically just hated everyone and wanted to go home and
0: have a cup of tea. Okay, so we're going to go back into some more in-depth questions. So, Sean, and if you could reimagine a comic storyline so maybe you just have like the um, the main story but you can kind of Put your twist on it however you want, which comic story would that be?
1: Are we assuming that we're doing it in the modern continuity, or are we doing something like with Ultimates where you're just getting a nice side reboot and you can do whatever the hell you want over there?
0: You can do whatever you want, yeah. This is like, you're reimagining it. The overall story is the same, but yes, you can reimagine it, say yes, in an alternate universe.
1: I would actually redo uh, The Decimation that followed House of M the
0: first
1: and through. I do feel like the decimation happened, and I don't know this. I know I've worked for Marvel. I have not talked to anyone in the X office to confirm this suspicion. I feel like the decimation happened editorially because there were too many mutants running around and they actually wanted to mm-hmm. cut down the number of characters available. And I feel like I read that in an interview somewhere, so that may be a thing that has been confirmed. But because it had been done to reduce the the scope of the mutant universe in X-Men, there was no dwelling on the consequences of it. And the thing I always loved about Marvel over DC is that for a long time, when Chris Claremont was kind of one of the driving narrative forces, things had weight. If a character's dog died, you saw them being sad about their missing dog for more than an issue. If somebody lost a husband or lost a child or even lost a pet, you knew that it had mattered. And so these characters existed as characters as much as costumes. And Decimation, big chunks of that were missing. For a long time, my prepped pitch for if I get a chance to write the X-Men, this is what I want to do, began with the suicide of Melody Guthrie. Because you cannot say that the only Guthrie child who actually enjoyed her powers and enjoyed and loved being a mutant would not suffer from being the only Guthrie child who got depowered on that day. So, I would, if given complete control, you can do whatever the hell you want, it doesn't matter if it fits in continuity, completely redo the decimation and make it hurt.
0: And I just gotta ask, in regards to the X-Men, what about the X-Men spoke to you and really resonated with you?
1: I got to exist. You know, the X-Men actually acknowledged that not everybody fit into the very narrow box of what we call you had mutants who were not necessarily combat ready. You had characters that came from less than idealized backgrounds. You had more than one girl, you know, people got to be there and got to be a part of the story that were not that narrow definition of things. And yes, they were for the most part pretty people because comic artists like to draw pretty people. but. I didn't feel like this was a universe that was closed to me the way that I did with so many other things. And again, that narrative weight that Claremont worked really hard to give them. He was not always a master of dialogue. He was not always a master of sensitive choices, but you felt like these people were people and they did stuff when they weren't saving the world.
0: And just kind of along those lines, just so I read that you able to write in the star wars universe obviously the marvel universe and really really interesting one for me the alien universe how did it feel to write in all those different established universes
1: i mean writing licensed tie-in fiction is very different than writing your own fiction Mm -hmm. you can't make mistakes in writing your own fiction i did not anticipate before i came into the marvel universe just how both passionate comics fans were and how i'm trying to think of a nice way to say this disrespectful <laughs> comic fans. Mm-hmm. like the shit comic fans thought it was appropriate to say to me was astonishing and i say that as someone who had been publishing for 10 years before i wrote my first marvel comic i thought that we had forgotten the word ham planet from the old uh, the old chan days but I got called a tit cow and a ham planet more times in my first month at Marvel than I had in literally half a decade. You know, uh, my weight apparently made me incapable of putting words on a screen, uh, that sort of thing. And I'm like, that's cool. That's really sweet of you. Are you insulting my male peers the same way? Because I I don't think you are. You do realize I'm in a committed relationship and you were never going to fuck me anyway, right? And no, apparently not also with my own stuff because i own it if i don't give you spoilers it's because i don't want it with stuff that belongs to someone else if i don't give you spoilers it's because i don't want to get fired but comics fans are and this is not not all comics fans obviously it's a small percentage but when they're the ones that talk to you comics fans seem to be and star wars fans are remarkably relaxed about just on a public forum going, hey, is this gonna happen? No matter how many times you explain Marvel has snipers and I have signed non-disclosure agreements, I don't wanna get in trouble. Like they seem to take that as a personal insult or like you're hiding something. I I am hiding something. I am hiding anything I know that might answer your question because I don't wanna get sued by a company that could literally crush my life. Alien was also fascinating because the fir- literally the first movie I can remember seeing is alien. I was three years old. I was on <laughs> my uncle's knee in the living room and a man in a funny suit was walking through a big field full of leather flowers. And then one of the leather flowers started to open. And then my mother came running into the room and screamed at him and pulled me out of there. <laughs> it is one of my formative memories is sitting there watching alien. And mm. I- have lost it if she hadn't jerked me out of the room because that was traumatic in a way the movie hadn't been. But so I have probably been in love with the Alien franchise for more of my life than almost anything else. I got hired to write a YA novel in Alien. It was the first Alien YA piece of fiction. I'm super excited about that. Like it was a great time. And there were literally people on social media going, okay, well, the franchise is dead. She's going to put her icky girly hands on the franchise and kill it. And I'm like, my power is so immense you guys if i can kill something as big as alien just by touching it i'm gonna go start touching stuff anything i don't like i'm gonna touch (laughs) that's my job now but it is it is a huge honor to get to play in these universes to get to make canon uh my first marvel comic was x-men gold annual number two which was a not a retcon, but a backfill story about Kitty that was specifically supposed to fit into a hole in her history. And when I started the first page and and went, you know, panel page one, panel one, and started writing the description, I literally stopped and cried for a little bit because I was describing canonical trees. They can get retconned, they can get mm. taken away, but they existed, and that never changes.
0: Yeah, that sounds like such an amazing experience uh, yeah just you telling me that got me a bit emotional i can just imagine being a fan and you're like you said you're 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 writing something that uh <laughs> that stands so very very cool yeah the only
1: tie-in thing i have written that i was not like okay this is this carries emotional weight for me was the star wars story because i was part of the canto bite anthology it was entirely about um we, we got a list of characters who were featured in the canto bite sequence mm-hmm in The Last Jedi and had to pick one of those and write a story about what they were doing. So it had none of the familiar characters, none of the familiar settings, we didn't get to see The Last Jedi, it, it had no grounding. So that felt more like being in a Star Wars role-playing game than mm. the universe, even though it was a canonical contribution to the universe.
0: And I gotta ask you specifically about uh, Gwennam, uh, as you mm-hmm. can probably see behind me, I do have a Spider-Man comic to my over here <laughs> so i'm yeah. a big spider-man fan and yeah death is gwen stacy is such a memorable comic like 121 that cover spider-man fans know it uh how was it writing uh the character of gwen stacy
1: so i know this makes me sound soppy, but when i got my call from the spider office and they basically let off with we know that you want to work for the x-men we know that you want to be in the x office but we were wondering if you have ever considered writing for gwen and I couldn't hear anything for like five minutes. I don't remember the last of that conversation. There was just this tone in my head, mm. but I managed to stay polite and positive and professional through the, rest mm. of the conversation, which pretty much ended with me saying, "Yes, yeah, sure, I would be willing to give that a try. And then I laid down on my bed and cried for 20 minutes because Gwen wasn't the superpowered one. Gwen wasn't the one with her title on the cover. So you, you kind of get used to in comics, when someone dies, you're going to get them back. Like that's just a standard expectation. You're going mm. to With Gwen Stacy, I never expected to get her back. I didn't even recommit when Edge of Spider-Verse went into the Spider-Verse happened, the, the original comic series, because I knew there was no way they'd let us keep her. And I wasn't going to go kick for the football and get it jerked away from me. So to actually get the chance to write for any version of Gwen Stacy was something I had never dreamt of. Even when I was imagining having the best comic career ever. You know, you're 13 and you're fantasizing about what your future is going to be. And I'm like, I'm gonna be Chris Claremont, only a girl. I'm gonna be a man. I'm gonna tell these incredible stories they are gonna be so big and everyone's gonna love me. And I'm gonna get to go to San Diego Comic-Con and they're gonna give me cookies. Like even when I was doing those kind of giant wish fulfillment self-insert fantasies, I never thought I'd get Gwen. And so just being offered that was so incredibly great for me. I I kind of wish it hadn't timed up with the release of Into the Mm Spider-Verse because that put a lot of editorial uh, attention on the character without it being a big book. I didn't have the marketing support Mm -hmm. and penetration of a big book. My editors were amazing. Marvel supported me all the way. I am not complaining in any way. But you you have to acknowledge there's a difference in launch size between Mm. we're doing a new Gwen Stacy book and we're doing a new Captain America book and that's normal that's the profit they can expect to make they are a working business but so suddenly I've got the editorial attention and oversight of a Captain America book and the budget and marketing penetration of a Spider-Gwen book that was not the most fun combination
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think one of my favorite parts, uh, I I really like House of M, but I think the one thing that was really powerful to me as a Spider-Man fan is when they snap back to reality, and Peter's kind of heartbroken that his happy place was with Gwen instead of Mary Jane, and then he has to kind of live with that afterwards. Oh, that was, I'm like tearing up right now thinking about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that that was one of my favorite parts of House of M, which is a book... I I love the House of M event. The original event is Mm. pretty much perfect. Like Chef's Kiss, all (laughs) House of M, even though it led into Decimation, which is the event I wish I could redo. Mm. But seeing Peter Parker realize that his perfect world, MJ is still happy and still has a great and fulfilling life. And he has Gwen. Like that is almost a beautiful subversion of the narrative we get a lot of the time in comics, which is Mm. the only wind up with your perfect soulmate you will wind up with the one person that is best for you Mm -hmm. Well, no sometimes you will wind up with the person that is there
0: yeah for anybody if you haven't read house them go definitely check that out john you already touched upon this but i'm always interested in hearing about people's collections so maybe you can just share a little bit about your my little pony collection you don't necessarily have to show us you know the most rare but maybe just share some of your favorites with us if you don't mind
1: no i don't mind um i have probably about 1100 my little ponies at this point uh this is the only one in reach because the my little ponies have their own room (laughs) okay um and that is because i have a young kitten she Mm -hmm. is seven months old and she still bites plastic so it's not safe to keep ponies on my desk this is Cutasaurus, who is the my little pony dinosaur from year six she's a pony pal and generation one my little ponies they were one of the first toy lines to really embrace the idea that kids might want to play with fantasy. So standard now that you have the toy unicorns and the toy wizards and all of these things, that it's hard to think of that. But I did, uh, I wrote an article earlier this year for uh, Reductress about Generation One, My Little Pony and the lasting cultural impact of My Little Pony. Okay. And Bonnie Zacherly who created the line. And so I was doing a lot of research and a lot of digging and by date, My Little Pony was the first major fantasy franchise that was aimed at children. And My Little Ponies are not gendered. You know, they are treated as a fee, as a girl toy in part because they tend to have hair and hair play is a big thing for little girls. Frankly, it should be for little boys because the urge to brush hair and groom is a primate instinct. It has no gender. it does not care. We just don't encourage that in our little boys. And so My Little Pony is not a dominantly pink franchise. It's they've just got these great plastic bodies and they speak to the, one of the good parts of my childhood. Which they were gifts from my grandmother. So they were a thing that I had as a poor kid that the rich kids had, too, and they couldn't look down on me for. And I just, I love them. They make me very happy.
0: Standouts in your collection that you're really proud of to, to have?
1: Oh, quite a few. Um, so I recently acquired the blue Italian version of Posey. Okay. Super hard to find. She is, I'm not going to tell you what I paid for her. That's, that's okay. But <laughs> she's probably the most expensive pony I own. Um, and I looked for her for a long time. I managed to get one of my grail ponies last year, which are the, this is a pony that you've been looking for forever, Mm. is the African, the South African version, who is a different pose and a different color than the North American and European editions of Seashell. And uh, I have managed at this point to acquire one of every pony released in the sitting down pose, which was a very little used pose from year two. I have Seashell and Bubbles, who are both American releases. The Brazilian version of Bowtie, and then Ladybird and Candelista, who were Greek only releases. And those five are the only sitting pose ponies that
0: they made. Well, are there, are you on the hunt for any other ones right now?
1: I have a six page wish list that I'm still <laughs> <going> through. Okay. <laughs> I have My Little Pony proxies, people who buy for me off of local versions of eBay and the like in Japan, Sweden, Germany, England, Ireland, uh, Brazil. Like, I'm constantly expanding the network because frequently these ponies, if they're for sale in America, are much more expensive than they ought to be because they weren't released here. okay. People in the areas where they were released who will shop for you. So I'm currently bidding on a vanilla treat, a Italian version of butterscotch, and a painting time all in Sweden, and I'm hoping they'll be able to get those this weekend.
0: Awesome. Good luck with that. Thank you. All right, John, and uh, just going over... The research you do for your books. So I know for your Parasite book, you said you ingested a tapeworm to yep. get the experience. Like, that's great. Like, that's <laughs> like that, That's hilarious. And it, you know, it, it shows your commitment to, to your stories. And for the new, Newsflash series, you know, you went to the CDC. And for the man Eating Mermaids, you talked to marine biologists. So what really, like, drives you to go above and beyond for your research for your books?
1: I mean, we were talking about how one of the things I loved about the X-Men is consequences. Mm. I like things having weight. My first arc on on Spider-Gwen, when it was Spider-Gwen goes Spider-Spider-Geddon, you know, I got brought in for this event and they wanted me to do three issues of tie-in. And I managed to extend that to four issues of tie-in by pointing out that at the end of the event, Gwen is the only one who can cross dimensions on her own. Who the hell is going to tell the supporting casts of the spiders who died, that they're not coming home. The funeral issue with Gwen going to people's supporting castes and telling them, I'm so sorry, Peter isn't coming back. That was the first thing I really fought for. and It was really important to me, but also sexism. Like I am a lady person. I am a cis female writer who mostly works in genres that are regarded as the province of men. I have literally been on a panel at a large convention where the male science fiction author who spoke before me said that he had done no research on atmospheric conditions on Mars. He just made up what he thought would be interesting and it was cool and people Mm -hmm. applauded him. And the next question was someone standing up to point out a flaw in my my virological research for newsflash that had not been a flaw when the book was written. When I wrote the book, I with the science as we understood it in that moment. Science had moved on since that, and this person wanted me to know. They needed me to know and acknowledge that I made a mistake. And that is frequently the female experience in both science fiction and horror, that if you don't get something precisely right, it's because you're too stupid and you got it wrong. So I have to go the extra mile in research to proactively protect myself from getting yelled at.
0: Unfortunately, I enjoy it. Yeah, that's unfortunate though. So I have to ask this question. Uh, I forget where I re- read this or I heard this, but you said in college you used to make novel-length continuations of Disney Channel movies. So I'm just wondering, maybe you could just give us a quick rundown on maybe some of your favorite Disney Channel movies and what what you wrote.
1: I genuinely love the the first two Halloween Town movies that they okay. Disney Channel originally. Um, I feel like with the third, they messed up. They went too far off their own continuity, and then with the fourth, they recast Marnie. Not okay with. So I wrote a literally novel-length fix-it fic to pull the third and fourth movies back into continuity with the first, okay. and and reintroduce Luke, who had been presented as Marnie's most likely love interest for the first two movies. Mm-hmm as a kid, you know, I watched these when they were much more age appropriate than they would be for me today. But as a kid, it was so obvious that Marnie and Luke were going to wind up together. And one of the beautiful things about fanfic versus licensed fiction, the big difference is everything I write for Marvel or for Alien or for anybody else, my editors have to approve of because mm. anyone else who works for them is going to have to deal with those changes to the character. And so sometimes the editors will tell me, okay, by the end of the story arc, Gwen has to have dyed her hair purple or whatever. Mm -hmm. They have a plan. Well, with fanfic, you just do whatever the hell you want. Do what feels like to you the reasonable Mm -hmm. thing. And what felt like to me was the reasonable thing was Marnie and Luke winding up together as they so clearly were meant to be from the beginning. And so I did a novel length, getting Marnie and Luke back together, trying to get get Luke rather past his uh, fairly obvious self-esteem issues with being a goblin to make a lot of sense for the setting as established and just ran with it from there you know i've enjoyed other disney channel movies but i've never really dug into them the way i did with halloween town
0: uh, do you still have the writing for that oh of course all right uh Shannon, is there anything you'd like to achieve in your lifetime and it's not limited to writing
1: i would like to actually finish the process of writing a broadway musical which is something i've been working on for a while and okay. get it staged I would like to see something of mine, and this is more of a thing that I just kind of wish fulfillment wanna see happen. I can't make it happen, but I'd like to see something of mine actually make it to film. Several of my works have been optioned for film and television, and none of them have yet actually aired uh, because television changes everything. You know, I'm mm-hmm. super poor, so I worry about money more than is probably, un- probably necessary right now. Um, and one TV show changes the world as long as you've protected your rights And, you know, back to back to writing, I would really, really like the X-Men. I want Hickman's job. You know, I I want to be able to set the pace of the line. And I think I could do it. I'm good at long running things. I'm good at assembling lots of moving pieces. Put me in, coach. You know, I'm ready to play.
0: And lastly, uh, what are some words of wisdom or a saying you uh, enjoy that maybe you try to live your life by?
1: I mean, a saying I enjoy that influences a lot of what I do is is from Stephen King and it's go then, there are other worlds than these, which is from the gunslinger. The original quote is go then gunslinger, there are other worlds than these, but it's actually tattooed on my arm. It's the only tattoo okay. I have so that it's always with me. And uh, the way that I've always interpreted that because everything is so very open to interpretation is that if something is not working If you literally can't hold on anymore, it is okay to let that something go and move on to something. don't have to hold on to a dream for so long that it pulls you down and drowns you.
0: All right, uh, Sean, maybe you can let us know where we can find you online, social media, that kind of thing.
1: Online, I am most active on Twitter as at SeananMcGuire. My website is SeananMcGuire.com, and I'm on Instagram as SeananMcGuire as well. And there I do a daily, if you're interested in My Little Ponies or you're like, well, this is... How can anyone have, there can't be that many. (laughs) I'm doing what we're calling the Pony Project, which I started under quarantine. And that is a daily photograph of a different My Little Pony in chronological order, starting at number one with the very first pony ever released and moving steadily through. We're starting year six today. So I've already photographed the first five years of My Little Ponies because COVID needs to end. We all need to go home. This is boring but uh, you can generally find me there and when we're not under horrifying endless pandemic lockdown you can find me at a lot of conventions i travel sub- i travel a substantial amount and try to hit every geographic area i can
0: and any upcoming projects you can let us know about
1: i am right now working on the encrypted novel that will be released in 2022 i don't currently have any announced work with marvel um that is not the same as I don't have any work, but it's also not the same as I definitely have work. I don't have any announced work. How well I respect my NDAs. Hey, editors, I respect NDAs. You know, that is important to point out occasionally. currently have any announced comic work, but I've got various uh, personal novels and such coming up.
0: I want to thank Seanan for joining me on the podcast. Please check out the links in the description for Seanan's social media and be sure to check out her novels. Thanks so much for listening, and please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts today. I'm Spencer, and I'll catch you on the next episode of This and Chat.